0: We've been starting this series working here in the book of Romans, and as you know, we've talked about it. This is such a powerful book, and we're glad that we're working it. The message this morning is called, Delivered Over to God. It's an important phrase that's going to appear three times in the little short passage that we're doing, but very, very significant in the story that it's telling here from the apostles as he uh, shows us what's going on. The passage that we're going through here, we're going to just really quickly cruise over from last week just to remind what we talked about or if you were not there. Last week we were there, we focused basically on only two verses, but two key verses. Two verses that the Apostle Paul thought was extremely important. And it's this passage here, verses 16 and 17, so I'll read it, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, that becomes one of the major themes of this book, Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's God's power for salvation to everyone believes. First to the Jew. I mean, they were the ones, the original ones. Then also to the Greek. And then he goes on, For in God's righteousness, For in God, its righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that passage right there, where it talks about God's righteousness, that was a key theme we were talking about. What does that mean by righteousness? Just to give you a quote from one of the writers, it was this about justification when we talk about what God is doing here. If you see it on the screen or you can see it in the back, it says, justification, what we're talking about, how God gives us his grace. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sin as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares to us to be righteous in his sight. It's saying, we who deserve judgment, instead, God has given us his very righteousness. He sees our sin, takes our sin. He knows the struggles that we have. And because of that, we have a relationship with God. And the point that we made last week particularly, it was so important. That is crucially important. During the time of Luther and during the 15th, 16th century, most of them had the idea of just do as best you can, work hard enough. Maybe it'll be good enough that God will accept you. And Luther comes in and basically kicks the can. And when he does that, the world changed. Because suddenly, as he read those scriptures, and as other people started reading the scriptures, saying, it's not about our merit, it's what Christ has done for us. We can have life with Christ, not because of what we've done, but what God has done for us, giving us new life. And that changed our understanding of what the gospel meant. And so that's a key passage that we're going to continue, we'll are be looking at as we go. But now we go to our main passage here today, and we're looking at a short passage, but a very important one, because here he is giving this very, very important issue about this whole relationship. How do people know God It's going to be one of the big issues that comes up. And so we're picking it up here in this passage, if you notice here. It says, for God's wrath... Is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who, who, excuse me, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's going to be a key phrase. Who suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Now, this passage right here that starts off this goes this way. The very first phrase is for God's wrath. Is revealed from heaven. And let me tell you, for a lot of people, when they had that word, that's the end of the discussion. People saying, What? You mean this book is about wrath? I mean, do you people really believe that kind of stuff? There's a lot of people who say, No, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that stuff. People say, you know, that is so Old Testament. I mean, Oh, yeah, in the Old Testament, you know, it talked about God bringing lightning down, and this door opened up, and this thing happened, and all the terrible things happened. But that's Old Testament. Thank God we're in the New Testament now. You go, really? What about what's old and the new, but what also God has given us? And we say that's so Old Testament, you're not understanding, because what God is doing, He's God is still a God of wrath. People say, well, my God is a God of love. Oh, well, I guess that ends the whole discussion. When I was in seminary, I can't remember this guy's name. I wish I could remember it. He was a well-known pastor. He was well-known because he was one of the most liberal that there was. But it was kind of fun to listen to him early in the morning. Anyways, I was listening to him. And he was going on and he was going on. And he was talking about what was going on in this. And he said, you know what? It's very clear what the scripture writes. It says right here, it says, God's wrath is upon mankind for their sin. Now, if he had stopped there, I would have gone, hey, I'm with you, buddy. I know you're a little bit liberal, but thank you for saying that. And he goes on but of course, we all know that's not true. That's not true. God is not like that. God is just love. That's all he is. He's pure love. And we don't have to talk and worry about that. There's none of that kind of stuff going on. And I just kind of like sitting there in my dorm room going, Really? You're on the radio, and you're saying, yes, I know exactly what this means, but it's not true. And that we know better what the apostle Paul knew 2,000 years ago. So you hear people say this, you know, well, my God is a God of love. And I would respond, yeah, me too. My God's also a holy God. That's the part that a lot of people don't want to hear about. Oh, yeah, he's a God, loving God. I love loving God idea. That's a good idea. What about a God who is still holy? He's so holy that he can't be in the presence of sin. And yet he's willing to bring salvation to us when we come to faith in him. So this whole idea of, well, my God's a God of love, that's true. That's exactly what we have in the passage. But we do have passages all through, even the New Testament, like 1 Peter 1.16. For it is written, quote, be holy. Because I am holy. And because I am holy, you too will be holy. And so what we see in some churches, we see in some denominations, it's saying, just give us the love part, and let's forget all the other part. Well, once you take that away, it's not the gospel anymore. It's certainly not what the Apostle Paul was teaching. And so it says, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. holy. So when we have this, people say, well, my God, God of love. It's, uh, the, the one who does not love, God, and I'm quoting this passage from 1 John. Remember when it says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's true. That's one of God's, you know, one of his attributes. He's not just loving. He is love. And so we know that passage is true. Yet that does not take away the fact that that God who is love at the same time can be God of judgment. If you try to separate those two, you've lost the gospel, you've lost the whole point. He keeps coming back to that phrase of going to this passage. Now notice what he talks about here. This first passage right here is very, very crucial. He says this, From the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, remember that we use that word attributes, the attributes of God, He is loving, the attribute of God who does this. From the creation of the world, the invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what he's made. As a result, people without excuse. This passage is so crucial as we look at it. From the creation of the world, his invisible attributes. In other words, people could have seen at least something and know something about God from what you see in God's creation. From the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, people in the ancient times will look and say, That mountain, it's blowing up and there's all this thing and it must be, I don't know, it must be some god or goddess who's called, you know, people in the ancient world had this idea that there was some creature or something that had power. And of course, the Jewish people had a very different perspective. They believed that there was a power too, but that came from God, not just from somebody's, you know, some crazy thing. But it goes on to talk about the fact by God's divine nature being clearly seen being understood through what he made. In other words, Paul is saying there's a certain amount of knowledge of God that you can know by looking at the world around you. I don't know about you, but I've had times where I've been on places where you feel like, this is like, I must feel like God is here. This is so, I mean, I've been up a number of, you know, 14,000 feet, you know, climbing up there, and you stand up there, and you look, and here's these mountains all around you, an entire range, you can look from there, and you think, what an incredible God this is, a God of such splendor, of such glory. And so he says, there's something that we, as people, can understand. God is making it so us, so there's something, you go, there's got to be something bigger than me, something more significant than just me in this world that God has created. And so notice what it says. For though they knew God, remember he's making this point, people do have some knowledge of God. They don't have saving knowledge of God at this point, but they have some knowledge of God. For though they knew God, here's what they should have done, is respond to him and look to him and worship him. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. No, they knew that there's some great power there. They were given by God an opportunity to know that power, and they chose not to experience it, not to bring it. He said, they did not glorify him as God. And then this very important phrase, and they didn't show gratitude. It's interesting they put that phrase there. In light of what all God has done for us, the response of someone who really sees the power of God, even in creation, there ought to have been this sense of gratitude, like God... Thank you for creating a world that could be this beautiful. If we went around the room and said, what's maybe the most beautiful place you've ever been? We'd have a whole different kind of place. And It's just, it's just amazing what God has given to us and what he has made. And he says, but instead, their thinking became nonsense. In other words, rather than responding to God, rather than seeking, is that they became nonsense. And he said, their senseless mind were darkened. What Paul's going to be arguing in this passage and the next one is saying, when you do not respond or you turn away from the grace that God is showing you, things get worse for you, not better. When you turn around and when you don't, there's no gratitude for what God has already done for you. So notice this next thing. Here's where Paul makes it, saying, doesn't this seem crazy? Claiming to be wise. These people who have heard this, they've seen this, they've understood his power. Claiming to be wise. They became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. And here's the bad part. The glory of the middle God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. It's like, really? Here God has given you a certain amount of knowledge that you can know about the nature of God. And so you're making, like, I don't know, like a rabbit or something and worshipping the rabbit. It's like, really? In light of what all God has told us, what he's shown us, it's saying you have turned away from that which God has shown you, which is clear, to go to go something else, some animal, some snake, you're going to worship it? And of course, Paul's Jewish. He's coming from that background, and as a Jewish person, he's going, oy they, I just can't believe that there's people out there that believe this craziness. But Paul is going to be working not just with the Jewish people. He's going to be working particularly with the non-Jewish, the Gentiles. And they are worshiping all these different creatures and gods and strange things. And Paul's saying, you don't understand it. When God gives you life, and not gives you life, excuse me, when God gives you the opportunity to know that he is there and you could worship him and you choose not to, you're going off the wrong place. And it's not going to help you at all. It is important to see when we talk to us about, you know, how does God communicate to us? We talked a few minutes ago the fact how God can communicate. How does he do it? There's basically, if you want to think of it this way, there's two ways that God primarily communicates to us in terms of understanding this passage. First of all, we call it general revelation. General means because it's general. In other words, it's not specific, giving us a lot of details. For example, um, here's a quote. This is from John Calvin. He says this, there is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awesome awareness of divinity, divinity of God's presence. This we take to be beyond doubt. In other words, he's making it very clear. Every person who's born who comes in this world has an opportunity to experience at least in part God's revelation. They've looked and seen the power of the tornado. They've seen this and they understand, and they recognize there's something bigger and greater than themselves. And so that's what we just talked about general revelation. It's given us enough understanding to know there's someone, something so much greater than who, what we are. So then Calvin says, so we take this to beyond doubt. Notice what he said. To prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance, and I don't know, I don't understand. He said, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. That is a very important verse. Paul saying that all of humanity, God in his graciousness, has been willing to do this. He said that God himself implanted. Now you can think, how did he do that? You know, did you get a shot in here? And You know, obviously God working. God himself implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. In other words, you know, instinctively, given by God, that there is some power better, greater, and more wonderful than you. I mean, that's a given. That's kind of like the basis in which we start. Okay, All men have a certain understanding of his divine majesty. Is it saving understanding at this point? No, it's not, but we'll come to that in a moment. Is it implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty? And his point is going to be, if you understand that and you see that and you turn around for it, that is a really bad problem and you're in real trouble. When you turn around from what God has been willing to show you. So general re- revelation goes like this. This is a good example of a passage that we haven't come to. We'll come to it in a couple of weeks in chapter 2. Here's a passage that describes what we're talking about, how God is working even through general revelation. He said this, So, This is Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He said, so when Gentiles, non-Jewish people, so when Gentiles who do not have the law Notice this phrase, instinctively do what the law demands. In other words, it's not just Jewish people doing it. There are good people. There are nice people who, you know, are trying to do this. He said they instinctively do what the law demands. They themselves are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. In other words, saying they, don't, they never saw the law of Moses. But there's something embedded in them that says this is right and this is wrong. This is good, but this is bad. And it's saying, "God in His wisdom, God in His grace has given that." We think of that, often use the word "conscience," that we can say, "You know, I just don't think that's right." And so there's a good passage where it's talking there. Their consciences testify in support of this, and their, compete, and their competing thoughts either accuse or accuse them, or excuse, me, or excuse them. It's using a passage there to, from, to take it. And to talk about how God has worked through that. And so it's significant. So we call that general revelation, again, to prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance. I didn't know anything about God. He says, God himself is implanted in all men a certain understanding of divine majesty. In other words, there's no excuse for saying, I don't know anything about God. That is a key thing that goes back for centuries after centuries of knowing God. The thing that we've talked about before is general revelation. That's certain things we can know about God. The second one is special revelation. This is the one that most of us go through and talk about all the time and never use the term. But it's saying God goes beyond just putting conscience in our head, giving us more of understanding. It's how God uses other things and other people that we can know him. For example... this. Here's just a quote. General revelation does not provide sufficient information for the gospel message. Let's start right there. In other words, by just looking at the trees and the things and all the wonderful things that God, it tells you that there is a great God. He's bigger than you, and we should worship him. But it doesn't tell us about how do we find salvation in God. And so when we talk about special revelation, it's saying thank God for the gospel because it's in this kind of thing where God is willing to tell us, all right, here's what you need to know, that you are a sinner. Christ has died on the cross for your sin. If you come in faith with him and you will find salvation, you can have that. And that's what we talk about. That's most what we're dealing with when we talk about how God creates. It's not through the general revelation, though that's part of it. It's the second part when we talk about special revelation of what God does. So here, notice this phrase again. So where general revelation deals with the existence of God, you know, saying there is a God, someone bigger than you, he said, and generic morality, there's something that God implanted us of right and wrong. He, they're saying the Bible and the person of Christ give specific regarding sin, salvation, hell, Heaven, the nature of God, the Trinity, the incarnation, death, the fall, redemption, etc., etc., etc. In other words, all those things that are essential for us to have a life the way we want it in Christ comes in that second part, special revelation. You can't look at the tree and say, yes, I fully understand the meaning of the Trinity. And if you think you do, I will come help you as we take you to the psychiatric ward and we'll deal with that at that time. Okay, so special revelation is what God gives us that we would not know unless God chose to give it to us. And that key thing, the most important, it's not the only, but one of the most important, probably the most, is the role of the scriptures in our life. When we talk about special revelation, yes, we thank God that God gave us conscience to every person, that he gave us an understanding of right and wrong. That's good, but it's not going to save you. But what does is when God gives us his scriptures, and in it we see what the gospel is, how we can find Christ, know Christ, have that. And so what he's doing here is very important. We're kind of getting off track in one sense that we're going past this, but then we've got to come back to this passage because Paul's going to take this and say, wait a minute, God has given you a certain amount of knowledge. We'll call that general revelation. You've had maybe the gospel preached to you. maybe you heard somebody doing that, and it's saying, what are you doing with that? You've heard it. Maybe you even understood it. What are you going to do? And that's where we come back to our passage right here. And here we're going to have three terrible phrases. Three terrible phrases, all in yellow. It's this phrase, delivered them over. That's a terrible thing when God comes to a person and says, he delivered them over. Notice the three things. Therefore, God delivered them, talking about those people we were talking about, God delivered them over in the craving to their hearts to sexual impurity, so their bodies were degraded among themselves. He said, you know what? They had enough knowledge to know what was good and bad. They looked upon it and said, I don't want it. And they chose sin instead. And he said, God... Deliver them. Say, you don't want it. You don't want me. You don't want what we have here. Okay. You know what? I'm going to do the terrible thing. I'm going to let you have it just the way you like it. And you're not going to like it because you're heading towards destruction. And so he goes on in this passage and says, they, those who understood God, maybe even they heard the gospel. It said, he said, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They knew what should be, and they said, you know what? They lie. They worshiped and served something created instead of the creator. That's one of the great phrases in this passage. They worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who's blessed forever. And then he goes, amen. Isn't that true? That is true. And so he goes on in this passage, and he puts it this way. This is why, here's the second one, God delivered them over. You don't want to experience that. Over to grading passions. for Even their females exchanged natural sexual intercourse for what was unnatural. The males in the same way left natural intercourse. And females, and they were inflamed in their lust. Males committed shameless acts in their own person. They approached it. And because, and here's the key phrase, number three. And because they did not think it worthwhile to have God in their knowledge. That's a terrible phrase, by the way, sad phrase. Because they did not think it worthwhile to have God in their eyes. words, I don't want to know God. God said, okay, you don't want it, you don't have to have it. God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. It's interesting, you know, he doesn't deal with this idea of the fact you chose against it. But it's saying you chose personally knowing what is morally wrong, and you took that rather than the truth of the scriptures. Because they didn't think it was worthwhile to have God in their knowledge, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. Notice what the scripture says. They are filled with all unrighteousness. And here he starts the list of what he's saying to people. Okay, some of you are coming around saying, well, you know, I'm not really a sinner. Oh, really? Stay with me for a couple minutes and let me tell you, show you a few things, he says. He's not saying that. I'm making this up. But the point is, his point is saying, listen, you don't think you're unrighteous? Let me tell you a few things about yourself that you've had the understanding and the opportunity to find God, to know God, even to uh, maybe through the scriptures and people to understand what God has done. And then you turn away from it? He said, so here's what people end up like this. He said, they're filled with all unrighteousness evil, greed. By the way, when you start going through this list, there's some of us, if we're honest, are going, "Mm mm-hmm, check, mm mm-hmm, check. Not that one, but yeah, check, check. Because we realize we are sinners. Thank God that I hope and pray that those in this room, they recognize they're sinners too, like I am. But the difference is they're redeemed sinners. Not, well, you know, hanging around in our sin. We want God to, we're looking for God's forgiveness and change. But his point is, he's saying, you know what? This is what happens when people who have an opportunity to know God in this way and they turn to things, things just go from bad to worse. You know, I was looking on the CNN a couple nights ago, and we were looking at this thing, and they're talking about, um, some of you saw this email about the fact, in, like what ISIS is doing in Iraq and stuff. You know, they're taking Christian children, and they're cutting their heads off. The people who were doing that probably 10 years ago, 20, would not even think about doing something that evil. Now they're doing it. It shows you how far evil can go once you start going down that path. When you decide, I'm not going God's way, I'm going to do it my way. And it doesn't have to be something as dramatic as what's happened at ISIS. It's the little things as well. He said, they are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, greed wickedness. Now notice these things. They're full of envy, murder. I doubt that that's in this room. Maybe sometime you've thought about it, but you didn't do it. Murder, disputes, deceit, and malice. Notice this phrase. They're gossips, slanders. Let's stop right there. I'm not going to do a message on gossip, but this is interesting. Kind of like in the same breath, he's talking about murder, and he puts gossip right in with the group of it. Now you would say you know, murder is certainly a bigger sin than maybe gossip, but gossip can bring a lot of issues and struggles as well. But he's saying, you want to say, well, I'm not as bad as that person next to me. I see people looking at other people. Okay, don't worry about it. In other words, saying, don't go around looking at what other people you're thinking are doing. It's saying, you know what? If you're honest about yourself and you look at yourself in a truth and light, what you find out is, you know what? I was a sinner. I am a sinner. And I probably will be a sinner to the day when Jesus takes me home. That doesn't mean it's okay just to say, well, I'll keep on sinning. Should we sin so that grace may go on? No. But he said, here's what happens. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Well, we better go very quickly past that one, okay? But notice these four things that all begin with the U. Now in Greek, it's actually with an A and alpha. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving and unmerciful. Nice little four group that he had for us right there. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving and unmerciful. And he goes on to say this. And here's this key phrase: "Although they know full well that God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, now notice this last phrase, but they even applaud others who practice them. It's saying, not only am I personally turning away from God, I'm encouraging other people to turn away from the very knowledge of God that he was willing to give us. A few minutes ago back when we were looking at that thing, we talked about, well, God has given a certain amount of knowledge that's all true. But knowledge that we don't, if we don't respond and understand and say, here, Lord, I understand that this is sin, what I've done. It's so easy for us to start thinking of other people's sin. Here he's making it very clear. He said, those that practice such things, and he takes it everywhere from disobedient to parents to murder, and says they deserve to die. They not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice. Like, good job. Yeah, you're really, man, you're really cool. And he's saying, you don't get it. You're just increasing the judgment that is awaiting you. Now this passage is crucial because it deals with this whole issue of how do we know God? But it also deals with the question, then how do we deal with the mass of people around us who do not know Christ and are struggling? One of the things, obviously, is compassion. Because if Paul is telling the truth, I have no reason to think he's not, He's saying if God has given us enough knowledge to know that there is a God, he's given us enough to know what is right and wrong, he's given us the ability to say this is wrong and this is right and I won't do it, and you know that and you turn away from it three times. He delivered them over. He delivered them over three times. If that's true, we ought to have compassion for these people. There has to be a sense of saying to, you know, and caring for them, saying, do you understand what's happening here? I mean, this goes right with the issue when we talk about having boldness and sharing the gospel with people. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I struggle with it. I know most of us do. But there's some times when God just gives you that moment where here is a moment where you think, you know what? This is a chance where maybe I could have an opportunity to share this with a person. And I know it's a struggle for us. I'm not saying that you need to go out and pass out tracks, you know, 10 hours a day or anything like that. But in the communities that we live in and the people that we know, if what Paul is saying is true, there ought to be incredible compassion for one of these people to come to know Christ. Because they had, they were given a certain amount of knowledge of God. There are people who maybe even shared the gospel with them, but they turned away. And they are lost. They're lost. They're going to be separated from God forever. And if it doesn't touch our heart in doing that, there's something wrong with us. It doesn't mean we try to jam it down their throats, but it means in a gracious way, we at least give them the opportunity to hear what Christ has done for them, what Christ is willing to do in them and through them. This gives us a real opportunity. We have these uh, students coming. I noticed we didn't have any today, but we've had a number of them recently. And we have got a great opportunity working with ISI, with Pat, with Tara and you know, Pan. And to have these students that are here, we don't know how God's going to work in the life of these people. It may be a person we think is never going to turn to the Lord, but it turns out that God is at work. He's touching the lives of people. He's preparing them to hear the story of the good news. And the question is, are you going to be there? Am I going to be there when those opportunities open up to say, hey, can we talk about this for a few minutes? can Can we share a few minutes about what, tell you what God has done for me? Somebody may say, I don't want to hear it. Okay, that's not your job. But our job is still of letting people know there is a great God who's greater than you could ever imagine, and he's willing to bring you into his relationship with him and you can have eternity with Him in a place that He's prepared for you. People say, "I don't believe that kind of stuff." Okay, maybe next year they'll maybe understand it. Maybe the year after. Maybe they never will. But out of this, when we understand, when He's talking about this, when Paul is making this point, is saying, "This is the real deal." God has given us enough to know that there is a Creator. When you turn away from that, and you even turn even worse the other way, when God shows you some revelation, you turn away. Whew, there's not a lot of hope unless maybe somebody shares with them, lets them know what Christ has done so that we could have an impact on the lives of people. We don't have to live our lives in guilt, but we can sure make sure that when God puts those little opportunities right in front of us to say, Lord, I don't know where it's going to go, but let's just bring it up. Let's talk about it, and let's see what God wants to do. The task of evangelism is not over until Jesus comes back. In power and glory. Until then, we're still called to do it. And up to this time, this power, this passage, and what I want to really encourage you for this week is go ahead and finish this chapter and read on for it because we're coming to key places in the Bible, in this passage, in the book of Romans. It is a wonderful book. It's in some ways a difficult book. If it's true, it's telling us we've got a big job ahead of us. The good news is we've got a great Savior. And he has given us the Holy Spirit. And we're not in this alone. And we can fully entrust ourselves to him. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what it tells us. Father, in some ways it's a terrifying passage to think that there's people, many of them, so many of them, who maybe have seen the power of God, have even maybe experienced it and yet turned away. We would pray that, Father, you would help us to be able to be open and ready to share the good news of those you bring in our path. Be with us now, encourage us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.